This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, it is good to be back in the studio, or I should say it was good to be back in the studio. Uh, but I just I just realized we did a full Murtaza Hyder interview and stay tuned. Fantastic talk. It it is a fantastic talk. More I did it with I did it with peanut butter all over my face and he didn't let me know. I, know, I was here to the witness. Yeah, <laughs> thank God, Murtaza we, was over the phone. No kidding. Yeah, we, we. It's great to be back in the studio. Although, like, yeah, come on, take a shower. I based <laughs> well. No, I mean, I based. You know what I did is I got one of those uh, the egg and cheese box from Starbucks, and yeah. I uh, motorboated the pe- the peanut butter uh, packet. And uh, here we are. Here we are. But you know what? Stay tuned for this talk, Murtaza Hyder, professor at Ryerson University. Columnist for the Financial Post. Uh, right. He's been a past guest. A really great episode from, I think that was a couple of years back now, but so good to have Murtaza back on the show. And it's a, it's a fascinating kind of sprawling conversation about Vancouver, but also Canadian real estate. It's actually, it's unbelievable. He's got such a command over what's going on in, in all the different markets across Canada. And super insightful guy. Really excited to have him on the program. And this is a great chat. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. But what else do we got, Adam? You speaking of peanut butter on your face? Well, you gotta. What is how how long is the the period in which you can say, "Hey, I got a, I just had a baby." Well, this <laughs> is you know what, yeah, this is it. I've got a you're newborn. Still in, you're still in that stage, I think. I, I've got can... I've got a newborn, and uh, I am still in that stage. It's she's almost five weeks old, and uh, I 
you know what I, I just noticed? I'm I'm getting a haircut today, and I haven't had a haircut since before she was born. I'm yeah, usually looking, like a three or four week. Well, when I got home, I I my immediate I think I commented that you looked like a hippie. Like you definitely, it's very rare to see you with a ponytail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm also uh, I'm at the stage in my life where where my hair it's less about the cut, it's more about the placement. Um, just because it's uh, I'm I'm patching up the thinning spots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but here it is. I'm I I usually get a haircut every three or four weeks. It's been about eight weeks, and uh, people are starting to comment, and that combined with just looking tired right now because uh, there's certain nights where we're getting up a lot right now, and. I took a photo the other day. Uh, I saw this photo. It was posted on social, social media, media without right. my permission. My my wife's in this habit of just now not asking me if she can post stuff because I usually say no. Um, so now she's just posting it without my blessing. And and so I I looked at this. I I, I guess she posted it. And I, I thought you looked good. I immediately got some text messages from friends of ours that were like. Hang in there, Adam. Like, uh, don't worry. Like, it gets better. It gets better. And I'm like, what are they talking about? And so I look at this photo. I'm probably like, you know, I don't know. I'm about 10 pounds heavier it's than time I usually to, Let's am. wait stamp this. Let's wait stamp this. I'm, I'm brushing up close to 200 pounds. Um, my hair, I look like, it's almost like a Nick Nolte mug shot. I look so tired and beat up. And then my hair is just kind of everywhere. Because I've been wearing a hat because I can't even keep my hair out of my eyes. I gotta get a I gotta get a haircut. Yeah, yeah. Gotta, but the but the amazing thing about this is because you guys went away for like three days. We were away for three You're days. You're away. Yeah. It's like a holiday shot of you guys smiling with a baby and all these people are like, Adam, like hang in there, bud. Nine one one. Yeah, like, yeah. Call nine one one. Yeah. We're worried about you. People are just sending food. And, and we also <laughs> the the craziest part about this is if like we had like a you know, like a colicky baby or something, but like She's been like, She's I'm, perfect. I'm sleeping more than I used to sleep. <laughs> so this is just, this is just me falling apart. But I'm uh, today marks me turning over a new leaf. Yeah. So uh, we're back. Well, we're back. We're in the studio. It's great to be back. But uh, what else? Oh, hey, we got a new winner. Vancouverism, Larry Beasley's book. Yeah, we should. Uh, we'll wait till after the interview to uh, uh, disclose the winner. But uh, thank you so much. There's been I think quite it's announced, a, Matt. Announced, uh, disclose. Yeah. yeah, I've been <laughs> real estate too long. Uh, disclose, disclose, disclose. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we have a new winner. We're going to announce that after. We should say there's been a bunch of new reviews, but right. your, your odds are still very good to get a, a signed copy of Larry Beasley's book here. There's, there's only there's like no 65 question. reviews or something yeah. like that. So, I mean, but, and, and, and honestly, we're drawing every week. So it's, it's crazy not to be in this race. Yeah. No kidding. But thank you everybody who's, who's recently reviewed. It's, uh, it's just such a, a pleasure to see. And, uh, yeah, with that, maybe we should cut to our talk with, uh, Professor Murtaza Haider. Yeah, it, this is a great interview, guys. You're going to get a ton from it. And uh, just a good recap of the market and uh, some exciting comments on where Murtaza would like to invest. And he knows the market well, so stay tuned for that. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Murtaza Haider. He's a professor with the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. He's also a columnist with the Financial Post. How are you doing, Murtaza? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today, Murtaza. And we should say a past guest as well. This is your second appearance on the show. Yes, looking forward to it. Thank you. Uh, so, Murtaza, can you maybe start by, by telling some of our listeners a little bit about yourself? 
yes, um, I, um, I'm a professor of real estate management at Ryerson University in Toronto. Um, I'm also the director of a research institute called the Urban Analytics Institute, where we bring the analytics to the urban challenges of housing and transportation and congestion and affordability. And at the same time, I write a weekly column for Financial Post um, on the economics of real estate um, in markets in Canada. Fantastic. Well, this next question is, is I think, the perfect one for you, uh, Murtaza. Is Canadian real estate healthy right now? I think so. I think Canadian real estate markets are very resilient. And um, um, a sign of health for, for me, for housing markets, is that if you do not tinker with them, that they are strong and growing. And even a greater sign of strength for me would be, or health would be, that if governments uh, come up with um, measures to cool down the market, that is the foreign home buyers tax and changing the uh, requirements for how one may qualify for a mortgage that's a stress test. So if you see a series of such interventions uh, and still housing markets do not collapse, they adjust to those interventions, but then resume after some period an upward climb. That's a sign of a healthy market that not only grows by itself, but can withstand strong regulatory measures. So I think the Canadian housing markets are healthy. That's interesting. So just in thinking back when the stress test was put forward, I guess, at the start of 2018, and then all these other policy measures, just thinking back, what did you expect, Murtaza? Were you kind of expecting that, that the market was going to be as resilient as it as it seems to have been, or or... What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, my take on 2017, the stress test came about in, were enforced across Canada in 2018, uh, January. And for our listeners, uh, stress test meant uh, that uh, those borrowers of mortgages um, that were um, uninsured, that is that the borrowers were able to come up with at least 20% of the down payment, um, uh, 20% of the loan uh, uh, were also subject to the stress test. In the past, the stress test applied to insured mortgages, the people who did not have more than 20% uh, to put down as down payment. So that pretty much brought in everybody under this umbrella uh, of stress test. And, and our first impression was when we wrote about it in Financial Post in 2017, we wrote about this, it followed by the people who advanced their purchases in the last two months of December and December, um, to avoid um, paying or qualifying under stress test in January, and that happened. Um, so, which meant that those who had advanced their purchases in, in November and December of 2017 uh, would not be buying the houses in January and February of 2018 or later. So, you see a decline. But um, my own impression was that the markets would start to recover in by April, um, but they didn't. I think the, it took much longer for the markets to respond in places. Um, so what happens is that prices are sticking, which means the prices do not fall as much, um, but the sales decline. So number of transactions decline. And what happens is that um, more expensive homes stop selling and more less expensive homes start selling more. Um, and, and that change in the mix of housing results in a, in a decline on average price, not the price of an average house, but the decline of the average price. So these things did take place. Markets did moderate and adjust to these interventions. And starting in 
late 2018, early 2019, one can see that markets are now picking up, especially in Toronto, where one, there are signs of recovery sales are going up. Um, I think sales were up in May and June, and, and people are expecting these trends to continue. Uh, Vancouver is a different story altogether. It's um, a whole host of interventions um, in mm-hmm. Vancouver um, that both the province of British Columbia and the federal government's interventions are playing. Um, all sorts of restrictions other than stress tests and foreign home buyers that you know, restricting people. Other Canadians from purchasing or imposing other taxes on on non, non-British Columbia residents and, and restrictions on empty homes. Um, so, so all sorts of interventions. There's a whole host of things that are happening. It's very difficult to gauge how Vancouver's market will respond. But then again, my point is there's more to Canada than Vancouver and Toronto. Other places are starting to show uh, some activity. Just... Um and this is just something we talk about and and it's generally talked about in our market basically what you described with pricing has happened of course in Vancouver where the higher priced homes have have slid uh sometimes pretty aggressively depending on on the neighborhood but the kind of entry level price points have held firm is and and one thing that i hear just in in general chatter all the time as well you know you watch the west side homes if if they're dropping like this it's it's a trickle down effect it's going to go throughout the market but you know i just helped somebody sell a property they bought in 2017 an entry level one bed and they we actually sold it for more than he bought it for in 2017 so it the trickle down through the market doesn't actually seem to be happening. Is it your your take that that that's probably not going to happen? Where that the prices are going to remain kind of sticky, as you said, at that at that kind of the local entry level market. Yeah, so all real estate markets are inherently local, and when I say local, they could be as local as neighborhood or street level local, right? So, for example, think about a. A strip, a street where um, uh, you have homes on either side, but only one side of the street has an unobstructed ocean view, and the other side of the street looks on the homes that have an unobstructed ocean view. So you could see right away that the unobstructed ocean view homes right across the street from other homes would command much more price. So location is critical to housing markets, but if you look at the city-wide impact, um, the parts of the city that are well priced and have not Experienced and um, uh, a growth that was experienced by other parts of the city uh, would would hold their value, would hold their value, and especially the um, housing segment, the housing stock that is desirable and to some extent affordable by younger young families and people who are starting out now with either moving out um, or, or becoming a couple or having first child and looking for a house. So the kind of housing stock that appeals to the younger cohorts or those who are starting out would maintain their value because of demand for it. And the stock that was sort of on the luxury side and appreciated much faster in the past, um, maybe it's, they would take time to regain the, the loss, the value they lost. Vancouver, on average, still is, is um, despite the recent decline in property value, the average property value, Vancouver prices are still much higher than they were five years ago or ten years ago. Um, so, um, so one can argue there may be room for further uh, um, decline in the price, average price of very expensive homes that appreciated um, in the, rapidly in 2015 and 16. 
but the neighborhoods that did not have that kind of rapid escalation in that particular period of 15, 2014, 15, 16, uh, they, they should hold value. They should continue to hold value. And in that in that same vein, Murtaza, what are your thoughts on the Vancouver market right now, and um, and in kind of the coming months for the balance of 2019? Well, you know, I, I'm an outsider to Vancouver, and I know um, some of my academic colleagues um, at UBC and Simon Fraser are far more uh, equipped to comment on uh, on Vancouver market. So I'm, I'm going to tread very carefully because I, I know the kind of um, uh, good, good, um, extraordinary talent in academic research um, in real estate that exists in Vancouver. Um, so I, I think, as an outsider, I think Vancouver is a good, um, good buy, um, good place to be. And it is very desirable. See, it's one of the most desirable places on the planet. That's how I see Vancouver. And I think people who are like me, who are immigrants and who have lived in other parts of the world, could see that value so clearly. Um, that you have amazing healthcare, amazing education, um, good economy. And on top of it is this nature, like you have ocean and mountains and, and a lifestyle that's so friendly to the environment. And so that appeal is not going to go away. You may have one set, one part of the world interested today and be able to afford it. You may have another part of the world or other part of Canada uh, interested in Vancouver. It is a very desirable place. It's one of the most desirable places on the planet. I cannot imagine um, that Vancouver will Vancouver housing will remain um, will not ex- ex- remain will not resume um, a healthy increase in uh, value um, sooner than later. I think this is, there's going to be more demand locally within Canada, but also from outside of Canada. So, Murtaza, one uh, in, in just thinking about that kind of appeal to the international community. Um, that Vancouver has. There's currently a lot of obviously growing growing civil unrest in Hong Kong. There's a lot of talk around an estimated 300,000 in in uh, Hong Kong who who hold Canadian passports looking to invest in potentially Vancouver and Toronto's housing market. Do you see this have, as having an impact both in Toronto and and Vancouver? Uh, it could have an impact. Um, we wrote about a study um, done by. Um, our colleagues at UBC and Simon Fraser, uh, where they looked at the impact of wealthy immigrants on select neighborhoods in Vancouver, and they found that there was not an overall impact on the entire market, maybe, but definitely in some select neighborhoods um, when these investment-grade immigrants were um, coming to Canada, they had some uh, concentrated impact on prices in select neighborhoods in Vancouver, and those were high-end neighborhoods. Um, so, yes, there's evidence for it. But at the same time, one has to take a broader look at the Canadian economy and the Canadian demographics. As I speak today, I just, I'm aware that um, this week, the Conference Board of Canada released a very comprehensive report on the impact of immigrants on economy. And there are some numbers that we must look into and consider because it should inform our way and our thinking when we look about when we think about housing and other aspects. And in summary, the, the report says, and I quote, that immigration will remain a formative solution to our economic problems, accounting for all of Canada's net labor force growth. That is 3.7 million workers that will that's a net growth will entirely be accounted for by the immigrants. And we have to know 
that as baby boomers retire between now and 2040, we will create a demand for 13.4 million workers. That's 13.4 million workers in across Canada that will leave the labor force. And the total number of people that we will graduate from school will be 11.8 million. So right there, you see over a one and a half million worker shortage between now and 2040. And if it were not for immigration, that would be a challenge. So if you are a baby boomer, if you, if you are soon to retire, think about the workers you need to pay for your pension as you uh, retire and relax and, 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 and spend your senior years, which could be two, three decades long. You need workers to pay and contribute to the pension fund, or else there will be not much left in the pension fund. So what makes me afraid is this rhetoric, this anti-immigrant rhetoric that I see, and it is gaining some traction in some parts of Canada. Um, So if you are just a one-trick pony, a one-variable expert, that you only look at housing from one end and do not care about what, what happens to the rest of the Canadian economy, then you would see this sort of um, immigrants are causing all our problems. Like so, they I, I see people there that are unhappy with rich immigrants because they buy expensive homes, and they're also happy with the not so rich immigrants because they take transit and transit becomes it makes uh, and it becomes expensive to 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 support public transit. So that probably is a very slippery, dangerous slope um, that uh, of thinking what you have to think is go beyond one variable of housing and think about all the Canadian economy to sustain our growth, to sustain our economic growth. And we need a a very large sum of immigrants. But at the same time, I'm not saying that there would not be any affordability challenges in parts of Canada and in parts of certain urban areas, because when immigrants of high net worth arrive, they have a capacity, they have the the ability to buy uh, housing at, at a higher rate. You see San Francisco is another example. It is not necessarily driven by immigration, but high-tech workers. So when high-tech workers are um, uh, relocate to take up these high-tech jobs in, in the Silicon Valley, and they're coming from universities in Texas and New York, and, and they come there, and they, they have the ability to outspend the locals. So you see these challenges all over the world. I hope that there is better there are better solutions because at the end of the day every city needs the the necessary workers the people who work in the hotels people who serve tables people who teach in schools and people who who are work with police and 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 fire departments one has to create an environment that their the housing stock is affordable for ownership and rental for them as well and the only feasible solution that comes to my mind um, in, in areas where there's high demand for housing and prices are high, is to respond to this high demand with extensive supply, new supply. Because cities that have faltered on supply have seen affordability challenges worsen, not only for for, for ownership, but also for rent. So, Murtaza, in thinking kind of holistically about the Canadian economy uh, and immigration, and, and I think you're right, and we've talked, talked and thought a lot about kind of the the potential kind of uh negative repercussions of just focusing on housing in relation to to immigration do you see the the policies implemented in bc so the foreign buyers tax um this the speculation and vacancy tax the empty homes tax like do you see government as potentially um helping aid in anti-immigration sentiment here in BC? 
I don't think the motivation for the government was to do so, but the government has a responsibility to ensure that those who live in British Columbia have the ability to access housing and shelter. So the primary responsibility of the provincial government is to look after the interest of the residents of British Columbia. And and I think the actions they have taken is to safeguard the interests uh, of the population. So um, if, if the sentiment could be coming from somewhere else. Um, these um, movements are taking uh, ground. I mean, you see what is happening south of the border. Um, the border is not thick enough to make us automatically immune to such a way of thinking. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't relate this any way, shape, in any way, shape, or form to the government. Um, the the governments are du- the governments in Canada are duty bound to protect the interests of Canadians, and I think these. Um, uh, these interventions were um, taken or were made with the intent to help um, uh, people uh, rather than you know, um, create any any discord. I I think what happens is that um, sometimes we uh, when we're looking around and we see this narrative and and sometimes this narrative takes uh, takes ground. I mean, for example, you know, like oh the 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 affordability crisis in Vancouver is because of a or because of B. And you ask yourself, well, what about supply side? Who's preventing the uh, uh, the industry from building more? These prices are rising at such a fast pace as they were in the past. It should have reciprocated with, the market should have reciprocated with its increase in supply of housing. And I don't think um, the supply kept pace with the increase in the price points. And, and I think that's where we have to think very carefully as, and, and, and when I say the supply, the housing supply did not take place. I'm also mindful of the fact that Vancouver has unique challenges. Um, that is, you know, the, the, the developable land is, is not the same way available as it is in, say, for Toronto or Montreal or Calgary or, um, or, or Edmonton. You, you have water, you have mountains, um, you have physical constraints. Your topography has, has limitations on it. So as a collective, as a society, what developable land available is available to the city and the and the municipalities around it. It has to go through some intensification uh, to be able to meet with the with the demand for housing. And at the same time, Vancouver, which it has done a great job of building new public transit, and it has to build these new public transit lines, sort of regional transit, so people can still be um, a good 50, 50 miles from downtown Vancouver but be able to come to downtown Vancouver for work in, in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. I mean, I, I would point you to um, the Metrolinx-run GO train system, which is a regional GO train system in, in the greater Toronto area. And a large number of uh, white-collar workers who live in a remote suburb of Oakville um, take the GO train in the morning and are in downtown Toronto in about 40, 45 minutes. And those express trains bring them back from good 40, 40 to 50 kilometers distance in a very reasonable time, in a very reasonable commute. So so this way, the city has been able to expand the affordable land because the commutes to the central um, employment zones um, is still doable. And as of late, just last week, the government of Ontario has announced further enhancement of regional train service. I think to the tune of 83 new trains um, service, so 83 new 
um, trains run to run on existing routes, so to reduce the frequency, to reduce the time between um, service so that people can take the trains frequently, and in some express trains so to cut the travel times to, let's say, Kitchener-Waterloo, which is our sort of an innovation hub because of the University of Waterloo there. Um, so these are all ways that cities, provinces can actually create more affordable land within a reasonable commute and also not by car, but by public transit so that we, we, we have a sustainable mode of transportation. So you have to think beyond the blame game that, oh, this is person or this group is responsible for say the prices are rising. If you know that you live in a very desirable place and you will be always be uh, uh, always be a place of great desirability. How do you increase the supply of housing so that uh, the supply mediates or moderates the increase in prices? But and and as I understand, Murtaza, Canada is set to to receive one million new immigrants within the next couple of years, and and it just continues on from there. Um, it sounds like supply is is required, but your sense it, over the kind of two to five to ten years in terms of price appreciation in in Vancouver with that type of immigration, it sounds like you're you're thinking that if if we don't change how we're building housing, the housing stock is is undoubtedly just going to rise in price. Yes. Obviously, the, the increase in, in demand will happen just because of the growth in population. Um, but at the same time, uh, people desire a place because in addition to the uh, other natural attributes like the, the, the water, the clean air, the mountains, the vistas, um, the place has to provide opportunities for employment, right? So they have to be uh, sustainable, sustained growth in employment opportunities. So. Um, if this place continues to grow, and I think British Columbia, especially Vancouver, um, has the potential to grow um, and, and develop even more opportunities and diversify beyond the natural resource economy, um, then you would see reasons for interprovincial uh, migration also happening. But all this is tied to our ability to house people uh, and be able to build shelter and make it available to people at affordable rates. So um, the increase in population, um, because a net increase uh, domestically is, is um, our fertility rates are low, so the, any increase in population will be driven, um, net increase will be driven by migration. It will happen, most will be attracted to the greater Toronto area, um, some to um, Montreal, not much, um, and then comes Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. So I think we need to figure out why and how we can supply housing better um, to meet the growing demand. Affordable housing is is almost a human right in, in, in a way that you cannot expect people to, one should not expect people to compromise on their shelter needs uh, because we, are, we have not been able to manage housing supply. Maybe uh, switching gears just a little bit, Murtaza, um, so when thinking about the major metropolitan real estate markets in Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, Montreal, they, they all seem to be at different stages of the market cycle. Can you, can you discuss some of these different moments in Canadian real estate? And what are your thoughts about um, uh, maybe a federal one-size-fits-all policy response to housing markets and challenges in Canada? 
Um, I don't think any federal government would have one-size-fits-all type of a policy, and the impact of such tools could be could have um, a disproportionate impact on on housing markets. For example, take the stress test. It was applied um, uniformly across Canada, and it was to address the rapid price escalation in Vancouver and in Toronto, but it also adversely impacted uh, markets in places where there was no price escalation, like uh, um, St. John, New Brunswick, or uh, um, um, smaller towns like Cape Breton in Nova Scotia. So so housing policy um, from a federal level has to be very sensitive to the local needs. One size never fits in, in real estate markets. Uh, from that point, if you if you look at the housing markets across Canada, you can sort of see three three types of pictures emerging. Um, the major uh, populous metro- metropolitans are, um, for example, take Toronto and let's start from Vancouver and, and, and Victoria. You still see that prices are depressed from levels uh, that were there in 2016. Um, so, but at the same time, higher than they were. Uh, five years ago, or definitely higher than where they were 10 years ago. So if someone is looking at a long-term average, one can still argue that these prices are still over and above the long-term average, but that's not the case in the prairies. You look at Calgary, Edmonton, and Saskatoon, and you see that um, the prices there today, um, I believe, are, are lower than they were five years ago. So, So there's a completely different dynamic there. Um, and then the the... Calgary and Edmonton, especially Calgary market, is a very interesting market because um, I think more than half of housing in Calgary today, in the Calgary Census metropolitan area, is is uh, was constructed after 1981. Right, so they have been able to respond to the growth um, through supply and and interventions that were meant to be for Toronto and Vancouver um, probably are affecting Calgary as much, and also the fact that the so Calgary and Edmonton and Alberta market is driven by resource economy and what happens to the top end. Um, any any downward impact there, any anything that goes wrong with the top end um, or resource economy in, in, in general in Alberta would have an adverse impact as it is having and has been having in Edmonton in, in, uh, in Alberta's housing markets. You look at Winnipeg. Winnipeg is very different. I was um, recently looking at some stats, and I was surprised to see that of the large, most populous cities in Canada, Winnipeg is one where um, only 30-35% of the housing stock has been built since 1981, which means that it's not been in a place where people are moving, it's not creating creating new demand for housing, and therefore prices are not going to escalate, maybe the struggle to keep up. And then you come to Toronto. Toronto followed uh, in terms of uh, apps and uh, rises and falls. It followed Vancouver. Interventions were set in place in Vancouver in 2016, such as the first time home buyers tax, I think it was in August of 2016. But in Ontario, it came about in April 2017. So markets started to struggle in, in May, in June of 2017, and fast forward to 2019. After the stress test of 2018, one sees some signs of recovery. Sales are going up, um, but at the same time, the prices are not because the kind of housing stock that is transacting now is of, uh, on average, moderate prices than it was in 2017. 
And then going to Montreal, Montreal is a very different market. Uh, Montreal is a housing market dominated by renters. Um, the, the number of renters um, in, in Montreal far outnumber the number of buyers, um, so the number of homeowners. So it creates a different dynamic there, and the housing stock is very different. It's neither single-family detached nor it's high-rise. Triplexes and duplexes are the kind of the, um, multi-unit, multi-family residential units that dominate the Montreal market. Montreal, after Vancouver started to grow in prices and after Toronto started to grow in prices. Montreal felt some of that demand shifting to it. But again, it's a very different city. Uh, whereas in Toronto, every second person was born outside of Canada. The share of immigrants in, in Montreal is quite low. It's probably around one in five. Um, uh, so this market would behave much differently. As for the East Coast, East Coast is a place where you don't see um, a lot of immigrants uh, being attracted to. And then there you realize that when the immigrants are not moving towards a place, to a place the economy is not um, growing, and obviously the housing markets show signs of either um, flat prices or struggling to keep the prices to rise even at the rate of inflation. So all sorts of different things. There's great hope um, that um, the next few years uh, will be there will be less uncertainty. I think the last few years of uncertainty in North America, economic uncertainty, I hope we are over it. And if we are over it, we should see signs of growth. So if you were, you know, we have a lot of uh, small and, and kind of mid-sized investors that listen to the show, kind of mom and pop investors. A lot of people are talking about different markets in Canada and, and where the opportunities lie. Are there are there certain markets? I, that overview was, was super helpful and, and clearly some of those markets are not, would not be attractive to investors. Which markets are you most excited about right now? Um, I would say uh, to investors, do your own homework first. So whatever uh, I would opine here, take it with a big bunch of salt, a grain of salt. <laughs> <would be> sufficient. <laughs> so uh, uh, um, it, 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 it's difficult because um, uh, uh, there are different, um, the, the uncertainty in, in the economy and how it affects housing markets. Is, is is there. Um, my two cents would be that as an investor, one should look at where, which places will be more welcoming to immigrants and which places will be then growing. Uh, and that place, because of economic growth and the demand generated by new immigrants, or in, in, a, in a interprovincial migration, those places are the ones to invest. I wouldn't put a name that invests in city X or Y, but I say that one has to look at where the pe- where people are moving. The flow of the, the inflow of immigrants and others to a place is a good indication of uh, a sustained demand. I, it sounds to me like that bodes well for Toronto, at least. <laughs> Toronto should be fine. I think I'm a big, I'm very um, bullish on Toronto. It's a, it's a place where Miracles happen. Um, you see lots of excitement. Um, you know, in the last uh, few years, the past few years, maybe five, seven years, I've seen several people come on television and and, and make the uh, 
forecast is, oh yeah, Toronto has overbuilt condominiums and it's gonna it's gonna collapse and whatnot. And then one year passes, and then the second year passes, and the third year passes, and the fourth year passes. And so to when? And so these people have made these prophecies, but then they would make us wait for 20 years, probably. Um, so, oh, so, Sounds familiar. So I, I don't know. So I've seen, I've heard them on, on television coming up with, with, you know, claiming. And interestingly, what happened is that we, with the increase in housing prices, um, as single low-rise housing became a little bit less accessible to a larger segment, especially younger cohorts, they moved there uh, to to high rise housing because their demographics allowed them to do so. They were single one person or two person households. So say, okay, I cannot buy a single family casual or row house because it's too expensive. Now I can still buy a condominium in Toronto. So so all those forecasts of doom and gloom of did not um, did not realize because and in fact when prices were falling for low rise housing in Toronto, they were not falling for high rise housing. So that's why I'm also very careful because I know that all forecasts are wrong. Some are useful, but most, almost all forecasts are wrong. So what one has to do as an investor is to stick to the basics. Do not, do not become too fancy in terms of sophisticated analysis. Look at where the demand is and going to be and, and, and invest in those places where you see people moving to. And Murtaza, what about maybe some of the smaller markets in in Ontario, maybe specifically? Like, do you have any any favorites in terms of like Hamilton? We hear people investors going into Windsor. Um, are there any markets? Yeah, and, and Ontario, Ontario is a very large place. I think fifteen to fifteen million people, and it's not just everybody's in Toronto or around it. Um, I would look at the areas that are along the Go Transit lines. Right? So. Um, these are the areas where you have a good less than 60-minute commute to downtown Toronto. You sit in a very comfortable train and arrive in downtown Toronto Union Station in 60 minutes or less. So all those places that are along the Go, Go Rail line and have not experienced a boom in prices would be good candidates because eventually people would start going out. Hamilton has started to experience a lot of growth and price appreciation. But then there is also Oshawa, and there's Whitby on the east of uh, Toronto, which is right on the on the rail link. And then there are other places like London, Ontario has a very good university, Western University, uh, Windsor because of its proximity to uh, Detroit, and also continues to be a very strong hub for automotive sector, and has a very good university there. University towns are really good investment because. Uh, the, the way I see the demographics, it's going to be either Canadians moving to for higher education to to the universities, and if that supply chokes, then international students coming to Canada. So, um, because Canadian universities have very very good repute globally, and I've seen how we've seen how um, New Zealand actually built an entire industry around higher education, because New Zealand is and fewer than five, seven million people, and they have very large universities, mostly catering to the demand, uh, international demand. And and so there's all hosts of sorts of opportunities. I, I believe universities will continue to grow. I particularly like Guelph on the area. Guelph is a very nice place, hardly 60 minutes from downtown Toronto, has university and has uh, very nice lakes, and, and, and the, it is a good 
town with strong agricultural um, uh, presence. You can walk through nice orchards and whatnot. So these are good places, and the prices are not very high. Um, and um, if, if one believes, again, don't listen to me, but if you believe in your gut that there's going to be more demand, um, then consider these places, at least for study. Um, one should research these places very carefully before any investment decisions are made. Maybe switching gears a little bit here, Murtaza, there's a lot of global uncertainty right now. It seems like there's uh, been talk about China's currency being manipulated, uh, the trade wars, the Federal Reserve has has dropped their interest rate. There's, you know, Donald Trump seems to be doing something different every day that is making people nervous and stock markets seem to be responding kind of in, in crazy ways right now. What are some of the biggest national or international events or trends that you see that, that could potentially have a, a major impact on our markets here in Canada? I think within Canada, we have elections coming up in October. Oh, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Long. <laughs> yeah. So that would be a big uh, uh, influence because the federal government, whoever comes into power, um, will define the way they will uh, try to steer the markets. And um, so so that would be one big thing to look to, to, to keep our eyes very sharply on that. Internationally, I see uh, some developments that are very uh, disturbing. Obviously, um, the situation in Hong Kong uh, is one that um, concerns me in the sense that um, we have not seen this kind of uh, activity in a very developed economy. Um, These kind of things happen elsewhere. So that's the uncertainty there. And and again, there's, as you mentioned, there's a large number of um, people who have strong uh, ties to the place. A large number of Canadians have very close ties with China and with Hong Kong. So that has a, would have a direct impact in, uh, in case the situation does not improve, and I hope that it improves quickly. Um, right next to China, um, the situation has recently worsened in, uh, in, uh, in the region, in the South Asia region, where um, India has um, eliminated a state, um, the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, the place is contested by India and Pakistan and China. And the, this has happened recently. And given that both India and Pakistan are nuclear weapon states, um, the world cannot afford to, be, to have a conflict between the two. Uh, on on real estate, and real estate is the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And China has uh, uh, has an interest in the place. It claims part of it in the area called Ladakh or around that. So so you have three nuclear power nations uh, looking at about 58,000 square kilometers. That's a source of concern. Neighboring, um, you move a little further to the west, you hit the Strait of Hormuz, uh, where um, a large supply of global oil comes and goes through, and on one end is Iran, and the other is Saudi Arabia, and they've been busy fighting proxy wars, and and, and that is not a pretty situation. And any escalation in tensions there, especially when you see that um, British and the Americans have 
taken control of shipments um, uh, from Iran, supposedly from Iran, and Iran retaliated by taking uh, uh, control over ships that were flying the British flag. These are the things that are concerning because any escalation there could affect the global supply of oil. So we have to be very mindful of what's going on there and hope that um, the the adventurism um, is not what is deriving the policy. And obviously, to our um, to our south, uh, the U.S. is again um, a very interesting situation. Um, you know, uh, the uh, uh, the way um, I think the more progress we make on negotiating our trade agreements with the U.S., uh, um, would the more certainty it will return to the markets. And um, and it's hard to say. I never worry about interest rates. I never worry about these things because they are beyond anybody's capacity to forecast or influence. I take them as weather. Whatever happens, it happens, and then you plan accordingly once it has hmm. happened. Interesting. So maybe we'll we'll leave it there, Murtaza. But but thank you so much for your yeah, insights. That's a lot of food for thought. And um, how can people find out more about uh, what you're doing and and uh, obviously your your writing with the Financial Post? Yeah. So in addition, they should visit uh, urbananalyticsinstitute.com. One word: urbananalyticsinstitute.com, where we put our uh, research. Um, and um, our latest thinking is always in the Financial Post every week. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again for your time, Artaza, and hopefully we can have you back uh, soon. Thank you kindly. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Murtaza Haider, professor at Ryerson University, columnist for the Financial Post, and uh, all-around very bright guy who is writing every week on real estate in Canada and a guy you should be following. Matt, I always enjoy having Murtaza on the program. Uh, it's you know it's perfect for a guy like me because often I get caught in the weeds and he just takes it, pulls it back, and makes everything seem simple and digestible. And uh, wow, I, I just feel great after that. Conversation. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a great conversation. I love this idea of of not looking at immigration in just from a real estate perspective, but right. as a larger kind of Canadian good for the sure. larger economy and the country and kind of make sure that nobody's getting pulled or sucked into this kind of crappy abyss. international abyss moment right. of politics we're in. So yeah, it was really great. Uh, also, like we just booked flights to Guelph. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> so <laughs> we're super excited. Can you get a flight directly to Guelph? I think so. The Can Guelph you? International Airport. Yeah, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure that okay, exists. All right. Well, then, hey, that's where, I, that's where we're booking. Uh, what else do we got for today? We have a winner for the book, Vancouverism, by Larry Beasley, past guest, uh, fan favorite, Sign, and someone I like to call a good friend now. Yeah, yeah. Larry is a good friend. Um, and we have a book for the review this week that was drawn from the hat. Secret drew it from afar. He's on vacation. And uh, I think he's also going to do this drum roll from afar. Okay. The winner is Forever Karen. Woo! So congratulations, Forever. And uh, we will... Have did, did I do that right? Forever I think is, so. it, is it? I think forever, your first name's Karen. Forever. Yeah, uh, I'm. 
I think Karen could be a last name. I, I'm not sure. We're not either, sure, but it's either forever Karen or it's just forever. Right. We're gonna. Well, Miss Miss F. Karen. Let's yes. call her. So anyway, we're so thankful for your review. Karen wrote, "I've listened for over two years and always love the show, the guests, the info, and especially the relaxed and funny format. If you are connected to Vancouver real estate in any way, this show is the capital's best source." Of everything you need to know. I'm learned... supposed to shout best source, man. <laughs> you got the idea. I learned something on every show. Great job, Adam and Matt. Well, thank you so much, Karen. That is uh, a, a lovely review. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, yeah, get in touch. We'll get you that book. And uh, we it's... appreciate it. And it is signed with a personal message. A personal so, message um, from Larry, Mr. Larry Beasley. Absolutely. And and listen, guys, here's the thing. We've only got about 65 reviews or so. So there is a huge opportunity to get your copy of Larry Beasley's Vancouverism signed, and uh, we'll get it to you. So Karen, get in touch. We'll get you a copy of the book. And everybody else, you can review, Matt. How do people review? Oh, yeah, I should say, this is this is how you go and enter into the contest. You go onto Google, you type in Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on the Right-hand side, you're going to see the business profile in which you can review. You hit that, review our podcast, and you are entered into the draw. And like I said, it's for the foreseeable future. We're, we're swimming in Vancouverism books right now. Yes. Uh, so we're going to be giving these books away. I'm reading two at a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, yeah. But what else do we got for today? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all your real estate needs. We have things like the Livewire. Oh, That's, I love the Livewire. Yeah, the weekly newsletter. We got tr- tips and tricks. We got the deal of the month. Uh, right now, we got an, a listing on there that's uh, an exclusive, not on MLS. We're sending out assignments. I mean, there's no reason why you shouldn't be on the Livewire. We also got private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. You heard it first from the guy with peanut butter on his face. <laughs> That's right. You, if you're going to take advice from anybody. <laughs> but one thing's for sure, if you're looking at Vancouver Real Estate and you're not using PCS, you're doing it wrong. So head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up there. But what else, Adam? I mean, we're we're back in the studio. We're feeling great. You're, Less than you're two dis- weeks. You're disheveled. Yeah, Less we're, than two weeks before Labor Day. I know. The fall market is hitting. I We're fired up. I feel like school's back in. Yeah. We're, keep in mind, you have 10 days to continue wearing your white jeans, Matt, and then it's done. <laughs> So just get as much use as you can out of them. Uh, and we're, we're, no, we're excited, though. We're both fired oh, up. And this is going to be a great fall market. There's opportunities for buyers. There's opportunities for sellers. And we can help you with everything. So do get in touch. Or if you just want to chat about the market more generally, um, you know, we're, we're low-pressure guys. Uh, we love to chat about real estate. So feel free to get in touch anytime. Big things are happening this fall. 778-847-2854 if you want to talk about it or email me at matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com and you, Adam? Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. You can also try Secret in the Shoe Swap. Shoe Swap. Info, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. He'll be back next week and he loves to chat. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll be taking a break from his F-250 and his boat on the back. I think he's, uh, what has he got? What is that even? It's a yeah. he's wakes. Is there surf, such a he's scurfing behind a boat he, right now? He is, did they say they're scurfing? I don't think. I, they, I think they, I think he's scurfing. 
<laughs> I don't think anyone ever said scurfing. I think it's wake skating. Yeah, wakeboarding. Yeah, he's do well. He's doing one of the two. He's working the boom. Yeah, uh, which he which he often does in the studio too. But uh, he's we don't know what he's doing. Yeah, but he's having a lot of fun. Yeah. Anyways, anyway, anyway, secret. Get in touch if you're out there. Yeah, and, we're, uh, we're wondering where you were today. To be honest. <laughs> All right. Have a good week, guys. Enjoy. Take care. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.